This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Maximilian Potter discusses his new book, Shadows in the Vineyard. Then, PW Senior News Editor Calvin Reed brings us all the news and gossip from San Diego's Comic-Con. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen BookScan. There's a lot of exciting things happening in the fiction list. We have a new number one and a new number two, and they're uh, neck and neck. Uh, we have at number one, A Perfect Life, Danielle Steele. Uh, Danielle Steele is, of course, known by people everywhere who have ever looked at the mass market bookshelves mm-hmm. uh, in a, a Walmart or a supermarket or a pharmacy, you know, the, those legacies of the revolving racks. Um, Danielle Steele is the queen of those. Right. And she is uh, out there once again, uh, now selling just as well in hardcover, I think she ever has oh, great. in paperback. Uh, and so this book is called A Perfect Life. Uh, it's about a mother who has a, a very high-powered professional life that's turned completely upside down mm-hmm. when her daughter, who is blind and needs full-time medical care, comes home from boarding school and has to come and, and live with her. And uh, they send along a caretaker who, of course, is very strong-willed and very opinionated and immediately kind of gets into the middle of that complicated mother-daughter relationship. And so they have to figure out how to deal with the difference between the facade of the perfect life, mm. as the title says, uh, and and all of the ups and downs of real life. Wow. So that's uh, number one on our hardcover bestseller list, A Perfect Life by Danielle Steele. And then down at number two, uh, also first time on the, on the list this week, brand new book, Tom Clancy's Support and Defend by Mark Greeny. Greeny was Tom Clancy's co-author for a couple of titles, mm. and uh, he's now continuing the Clancy legacy with this book about Dominic Caruso, who is uh, one of Clancy's most popular characters, uh, the nephew of President Jack Ryan, uh, who's a major figure in the Clancy books. Uh, and Greeny seems to be doing an admirable job of uh, picking up where Clancy left off and continuing for the many, many, many Clancy fans out there. So, is someone like him who's picked up for Clancy? Is it would he do it for all of Clancy's books or just certain kinds? Um, that's a good question. Series. I suspect you know, this is his first book, um, really writing it on his own mm-hmm. without uh, Clancy being there to to co-author with him. And so, I suspect the publishers will see how this one does. Right. Um, but certainly, being at the top of the bestseller list or nearly at the top uh, with 21,000 units sold in its first week. Um, That's a very promising start. And from here, who knows where he could go? Yeah, right. So that's the movement uh, here on the fiction list. What do you have for nonfiction? Well, not quite as much as you do on fiction, I have to say. So nonfiction, our first, uh, our our, our highest debut uh, 
is number 15. Other than that, everything's pretty much stayed the same, mm -hmm. shifting uh, a slot or two here or there. But number 15, Clinton Incorporated the Audacious Rebuilding of a Political Machine. Uh, this is by uh, Daniel Halper. He's the uh, editor of the Weekly Standard. And... Uh, he, uh, we, we have not reviewed this book, but uh, the uh, copy says, a meticulously researched account of the brilliant calculations, secret deals, and occasionally treacherous maneuverings that led to the Clintons' return to political prominence. So this is at number 15. And meanwhile, Hillary Rodham Clinton's own book is up at... Uh Number four, actually, up right. from number five. That's right. And then we also have Clinton versus Obama. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, that's another one that's right up there. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, so we got a lot of Clintons going on. The next one up at number 33 is Travels with Casey, My Journey Through Our Dog Crazy Country by Benoit Denizel Lewis. He's a uh, writer for uh, New York Times Magazine. And he spent four months driving around with his Labrador mix dog named Casey, uh, to paint a portrait of Americans in the love affair with dogs. Um, we, we say comparisons to John, Stein, uh, John Steinbeck's travels with Charlie are obviously, but this is an entirely different and equally rewarding piece of work that expands each page without losing its narrative thread or the reader's interest. So uh, that's at number 33. So I'm, I'm a cat person. I'm I'm, I've really never been a dog person. Is this one of those books that I should, you know, get for my my friends who are into dogs? But uh, or do you think that even a cat person like me could get something out? Oh, it's so you know, there's so many dog uh, dog books out now, and there's quite a few, you know, several cat books. And oh, sure, I, yeah, there's, there's yeah, no, yeah, yeah, there's no lack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this one, uh, I, I think those interested in, I, I think looking at a like a cultural phenomenon in the United States, those who just love dogs. So I. I I think giving it to a dog-loving person would be pretty good. All right. And just, just to talk a little bit about uh, just dipping down into our cookbook bestseller list. We recently did uh, a feature on cookbooks, and one of the things we uh, we did was we looked at rather, it's, it's kind of like choosing your juice. So mm -hmm. it's those of you who like to juice with vegetables or, or however, and the others who like to their other juice, which is liquor, spirits, or beer. <laughs> so um, number four, we've got two two uh, debuts on the, on the bestseller list. Juice Recipes for Juicing, Cleansing, and Living Well. Uh, that's at number four by Carla DeCastro, and there's a lot juice books. I've been seeing more and more of these every season. And then for the beer lovers, the complete beer guide, boot camp for beer geeks from novice to expert in 12 tasting classes at number 28. This is by Joshua Bernstein. So those are the two just looking down at uh, at our one of our category lists. So whatever you like to imbibe, there's a book out there for you. There's something for you. Yes. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Maximilian Potter tells us about extortion and scandal in Burgundy's vineyards. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Maximilian Potter on the line. His new book, which is also his first book, is Shadows in the Vineyard. Max, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about this book. The narrative nucleus of the book, I guess, is a crime, and um, it's a crime that was committed against what is widely regarded as the the most storied, legendary winery in the world, which is uh, located in Burgundy, France, uh, about 
three to four hour drive south of Paris. And um, this domain produces a handful of the very best wines in the world. There's very few critics, I think, maybe none on the planet that would argue that. Mm-hmm. And the crown jewel of their lineup is called the uh, Romani Conti. And um, in the uh, in the winter of January 2010, Aubert de Villene, who is the co-director and one of the owners of the Domaine de Romani Conti, got a note. And in effect, what it communicated to him is that uh, some of the vines in your most prized vineyard, the Romani Conti Vineyard, have been poisoned, and the rest of your vineyard is essentially teed up to be decimated. If you want to prevent this from happening, stay tuned for another note. And therein begins the crime narrative. But that's, that's I think of that as sort of the vine stock, the, the main vine, from mm-hmm. which the tributary stories, the, the shoots, the narrative shoots grow. And uh, along the way, uh, readers will meet, um, I think, some pretty compelling characters. Uh, the Prince de Conti, who is uh, the vineyard is named after, was really the, the James Bond of pre-revolutionary France. He, he created um, the, the spy network for, for France mm-hmm. called the Secret de Roi. And uh, he's a pretty dashing guy, um, depending on... And, and if you viewed him, you, have, you would have to view him through a prism. He could be... He was called a chameleon, so he could be... Um, uh, a good guy or a bad guy, depending on the day of the week and depending on who was looking at him. And uh, there's this fascinating backstory of the domain itself and the hands that it passes through. Um, so I think that that when I was working on the book, what I would tell folks is, is that um, the crime is what brought me to, to Burgundy in the first place. But but the poetry and the history and, and the colorful characters and, and this just vast panoramic sweep over this vast panoramic sweep of time is what brought me back. So let's go, let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the the crime itself before we move on. What why Aubert de Valaine? and um, tell us a little bit more about the the group that we're going to poison the wine and how are they going to do it? Sure, why Aubert is I think just a, f- a feature uh, a function of the fact that he heads the Domain de la Romani Conti. So the bad guys, uh, without giving too much away, the bad guys knew what they were doing when it came to mm. wine. They had a, a, a background, in uh, a pretty extensive background, um, in the life of Vigneron. Vigneron is, is the, the French word for vine grower. So the, one of the bad guys was a Vigneron himself and knew French wine pretty well. And he knew that the Domaine de la Romaniconti produced the world's rarest, most expensive wine. So for context, you know, a, a bottle of the 2009 vintage, um, when it was first put on the market, um, and, and Domaine de la Romaniconti, there's a three-year delay mm-hmm. before they put a vintage on the market. So a bottle of that stuff was going for 3500 bucks a pop. Wow. That is if you could find it and buy it at that price, which is highly unlikely. By the time a bottle of that 2009 makes it to a place in the world where you could actually buy it, it's you're talking about 10, north of $10,000 a bottle. And that's for the most, that would have been the price for the most recent vintage available at the time. Of course, the older a wine is, the more the value goes up. 
So the bad guy, why Aubert de Villain is because he runs the domain de la Romanicanti, <clears throat> and the bad guy Saul, uh, as the prime target, the vineyard that produces the world's rarest, most expensive wine, mm. and he was going to attack essentially the vineyard that produces, you know, the, there's the goose that laid the golden eggs, and then there's the vineyard that produces the golden bottles of wine, and that's the one that our bad guys went after. And the, the second part of your question is, is what I think, um, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Mark, but I think you asked what exactly did the bad guys do here? Mm-hmm. And what what they did is, is they, <clears throat> um, <laughs> well, in, in January 2010, when Aubert de Villain gets this note that informs him um, that his, his vineyard has been marked for some sort of terrible crime, he the map that he received with the note was extraordinarily detailed. It was the most meticulously uh, detailed map. In fact, the, the domain itself didn't have a map of this detail. So it it was on graph paper, a massive sheet of graph paper <clears throat> rolled up, and it had 20,000, all of the 20,000 plus vines in this less than five-acre parcel represented by by a single dot. Wow. And so what... What the bad guy did when Obear got the second note uh, is when he realized that I really need to pay attention to this. The bad guy said, "So if you if you think I was kidding around the first time, uh, go out and take a." And the, the second note came in the map, <laughs> and the map had two X's in the in the southwestern corner. And the note said, "If you th- if you think I'm messing around, go out to your vineyard and take a look at the two vines I have marked with an X." So Aubert immediately gathers his senior team together, and they stroll out to the vineyard, and they see, lo and behold, sure enough, these two vines were dead. The equivalent of the horse head in the bed analogy, I guess. Wow. And so, so what the bad guy had done, once, once they pull the vines and they start inspecting them, what they learn is the bad guy had um, come into the vineyard, and just below the where the vine is married to the soil, just below the soil, he had... Uh, scraped away, dug out some of the soil, and he took a drill and drilled a hole into the vine and then filled it with uh, what, what turned out to be an herbicide and then went through the trouble of recorking the hole so that if anyone, uh, any of the vineyard workers would have come upon it, they would have had no way of knowing that the vine had been tampered with until it was dead. Oh, wow. That is that is so intense. And the, the thought of someone doing that to one of these vines, I mean, the, the, those vines have been grown for hundreds of years. They're sort of the, the the vintner's equivalent, not necessarily of the work of art that the bottle of wine is, but the, the master's paints and paintbrushes. Uh, well, that's, exactly. That's very exactly. serious. Yeah, exactly, Rose. And there's, there's really several reasons why, and oh, by the way, on the, the map, it marked a whole hundreds of other vines. And, you know, when you're going through this investigation or the story in real time and you don't know how this ends, I, I, what I tried to do is put the reader in the mind of Aubert de Villain, who I had extensive conversations with over a year and a half. And I tried to put the, have the reader see the circumstances through his eyes um, and, and with the history and responsibility that he brings to it. So there were several reasons why when he sees this map with two vines dead and hundreds of others that appear to be marked as vines that have already been hit, um, 
he, he's beside himself because what he thinks about and what most, if not all, Burgundian vineyards think about, first and foremost, is, is the legacy and the history. Many of these vineyards have been passed down through hundreds and hundreds of years from, through, through family generations. And there's something else here, too, which I think, I, I hope the, the book is successful in getting the reader to appreciate this, because I know when I went, what I'm about to say, I thought it was a lot of um, malarkey, basically, just, just French um, marketing nonsense. Um, but having been there for the, for the better part of, of two years uh, in total, um, I came to believe what I'm about to say is just unbelievably awesome and undeniable and true and wonderful, which is that Burgundian in, in, in Burgundy, because winemaking is the center of their universe, it, it's not a religion, but it's a philosophy. It's, it's married to their Catholicism. It's, it's married to their faith. Um, they're, they're sort of inextricable. And if you think of that, that Vignerian culture as their universe, the basic atom of, of that universe is where the vine is married to the earth. That is mm-hmm. the most sacrosanct, sacred union uh, in Burgundy. And it, just shy of literally, it seems, holds that world together. And if that were to be pulled apart or killed or destroyed or attacked, that's the heart of Burgundy's essence. And this was an unprecedented crime where no one in Burgundy, uh, I, I talked to the cops about this extensively, but no one in Burgundy had ever even contemplated that someone would attack the very union of the marriage of the vine to the earth, let alone do it by drilling a hole into this. And one of the early conversations I had with um, Aubert, I said, well, these bad guys, they didn't really know what they were doing. And he, he looked me dead in the eye, cocked an eyebrow, and he said, oh, they knew exactly what they were doing. And as I would come to learn investigating just who these guys were, um, he was right. They, they knew exactly what they were doing in terms of the viticulture component of the crime. And then there's one last thing that makes these vines extraordinarily precious to Aubert. And that is the fact that he and his wife um, desperately wanted to have children. They were, they were put on earth, I think, to have kids. Uh, and they were unable to. Mm-hmm. Um, and when, when Vignerans in Burgundy, they talk about their vines as enfants, which is, of course, children. But they all, the most, most of them go home and they have their own actual enfants, their children. Aubert didn't have that. Mm. And so the vines very much became his children. And there's, uh, there was a moment, I saw him do this many times, but there's a moment in the vineyard where, and I, and I write about this and do my best to capture it in the book, where he's checking out the vines and trying to decide when he's going to do a harvest. And I would watch him from afar. I'd watch him up close and from afar. But there's many times I'd watch him, even though I was watching, just standing away from him in the vineyards. And he was by himself, and he just walks out into the vineyard, and he's 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 at peace, and he's with himself, and he's you know just walking through the vines, and he's a tall, slender guy. He's very vine-like himself, actually, and he's running his hands across the tops of the vines, and he stops, and he and he, he squats down in the in a portion of the vineyard. It was Romani Saint-Vivant, another vineyard uh, parcel that they have vines in, and he scooches down and he moves the canopy of the vine, of the leaves off of the vine, because he's trying to inspect the grapes. And 
he did it with such a tenderness that, that you know, I, I have two little boys, and it's kind of the way that I move their hair off of their forehead before I give them a kiss goodnight. And, and that's, to witness this guy interact with the vines in this way, uh, to me, is what really started to bring it home, just what this meant to him and, and what the crime could have done to him and to Burgundy. That's so intense. Wow. And um, I was going to ask, you said you started researching the perpetrators and, and found out how they how they knew and how deeply entangled with, with this culture they were. Can you tell us a little bit about them without maybe giving everything away? Sure, I'll, I'll, do, I'll do my best. Um, they were... They were raised uh, in a Vignerian family uh, in in Champagne, mm-hmm. and um, l- let's put it this way: the the lead bad guy um, didn't really like the life of Vignerian, and this put him at odds with his father. Uh, his, his father had worked very hard; uh, he was an immigrant and saved up and bought managed to buy some some really prestigious grand cru vines grand cru is the the, top, the creme de la creme the top the top uh, of the wine hierarchy of grand cru and this bad guy's father had managed to work hard uh, with his wife and save up and he was able to buy grand cru vines and the bad guy um he, he didn't really want to be a part of the vineyard lifestyle and this put him at odds with with his father, and so what I'll say is, while he, while the bad, the main bad guy was was clearly in it for money, having spent time in his village and, and spoken to his family and his, his wife and friends, uh, there was a lot more going on in terms of his motivation for for why he was attacking vines. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Maximilian Potter, author of Shadows in the Vineyard, who's been telling us this incredibly intense story about intrigue and drama in Burgundy. And Max, you first wrote about this for Vanity Fair. How did the idea come to you to, um, first of all, to follow this story, which you said you ended up spending almost two years in France, and second of all, to turn it into a book? So uh, for by the time I had heard about this, crime. I've been in magazines for 20 years in both a writer and an editor capacity. And just by the way things turned out, whether as an editor or a writer for most of that time, I was covering stories that weren't entirely um, life-affirming. You know, they, they, they didn't really... Put a, they didn't really instill faith in humanity in you when you read these. It was death, murder, war, <laughs> kidnappings, crime, just not happy stuff. Stories that we believed, considering whatever pub, whatever publication I was at at the time or myself as the writer, needed to be written. But they weren't essentially fun to work on, and they sort of they took a toll 
on mm-hmm. me over time. So by the time I heard about this, I was burnt out. And that's relevant because where I heard about it was uh, in the summer of 2010, my wife and I uh, ended up in the Napa area, f- area for our 15th wedding anniversary. And an old college buddy of mine who I knew was, quote, in the wine, but I didn't know exactly what that meant. He and his wife lived out there, and he very kindly insisted on giving my wife and I a tour while we were there. And, you know, this, this is a guy, like, the last time I had spent any kind of quality time with him, he was doing keg stands behind the fraternity house. And now he's he's driving my wife and I uh, through um, the, the stretch of, of the best vineyards in, in Northern California, and he's speaking with an exhaustive and comprehensive and very detailed knowledge of etiology and viticulture and wine. And I'm uh, thinking, where did this guy come from? And we joked about it in the car. And I said, man, the next place I feel like we're going to go to is your winery. And he said, yeah, that's after lunch. And I thought, oh, okay. okay. So you are serious. But as he's telling me all these stories and we're going in and out of the different wineries, by by noon, I I don't know if you guys have ever done this tour, but I'm guessing if you have a number of your listeners have. (laughs) You know, but if you start in the morning by noon, you're sort of like blissfully tipsy, the sun's out, you know, life is pretty good, right? And He's been telling me at this point all of these fantastic stories, and I say to him, you know what, man? i got to find a way to do a story out here where it's all like rainbows and unicorns and kisses and cupcakes, <laughs> and, and everybody's like loving life. And, you know, if somebody's up to no good, I don't know about it yet, and frankly, I don't want to know about it, but this looks pretty sweet. And he laughed, and he said, it's funny, I was going to, I have a story idea that you might be interested in, but it's not based in Northern California, and it's not really a happy story. And I said, well, what do, you, what do you got? And he said, well, I've been hearing and reading a little bit about that some bad guys over in France um, have either destroyed or almost destroyed or kind of destroyed um, the Domaine de la Romane Conti's uh, vineyard, Romane Conti. And I said, great, what's the Domaine de la Romane Conti? <laughs> <laughs> so we got to go back to the later that night. Well, he tells me a little bit more about it, and he said, as he's explaining it to me, I, I'm thinking, well, I don't know about wine, but I've been—I feel like I have a pretty good nose for a magazine story and, and, and pieces worth spending time on. Um, how did you? Why don't I know about this? I mean, I read the newspapers, you know. And he said, No, you're not going to. At the time, he said, You're not going to find it in the newspapers. He said that it's only appeared on two or three wine blogs, and it seems like that. You know, Aubert de Villain wants to keep it pretty quiet. Yeah, and nobody, I'm sure. Nobody's talking over there. And I said, oh, okay. So that, that night I go back to the my hotel room um, with my wife, and I'm, you know, I'm in the Google now, right? So I'm doing the Google, and I'm putting in all these search terms. And sure enough, everything he was t- he had told me um, proved accurate. My wife is throwing pillows at me saying, what are you doing? We're on an anniversary. And I said, no, just wait a minute. Look at me. This is pretty cool. This is the perils so of I, being married I, to a journalist. <laughs> yeah. So then I sent, uh, um, I have a, a good work relationship um, with, with Vanity Fair and my editors there. So I emailed them and I said, hey guys, you know, I put together pretty, it was a quickly um, crafted, you know, query letter, but it was, that's what it was. And uh, Graydon, um, he's a pretty smart guy, you know, he's been around for a while and puts out a pretty awesome magazine. And uh, his instinct was, he just emailed back pretty sure that after he said, good, go for it. Um, see when you get back, you can work with the editor. You normally work with a guy named Dana Brown, who's awesome. And, uh, 
part two of that is how did I, how or when did I begin to think it was um, a book? Well, you know, having been doing the magazine stuff for 20 years, I think there's only three times in that 20 years where when I got into reporting a story, I felt like, wow, you know, there's way more here. This this aches for a book. There's no way, you know, pardon the pun. There's no there, there's no way I'm going to be able to bottle all that's here in a magazine story. And this was this was one of those times. And you know, before I went to Burgundy, my my impression of of the place, I guess, can be best summed up in in sort of my 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 view of what I thought or who Aubert de Villain was which was this. I figured, you know, this guy, Aubert, is going to be some soft-palmed, ascot-wearing French aristocrat who probably never goes into the vineyards himself, probably doesn't do any of the work, staffs all that out, and just charges way too much money for a liquid. And they talk about things like terroir and who really cares. And maybe this guy pretty much had it coming, you know, if yeah. if if that's how you roll. And when I got there, in no time, um, I quickly began to realize just what a fool and how ignorant I was about who he is and what that place is all about. And for all the aforementioned reasons, you know, I was pretty cynical when I got there. You know, I was pretty much your stereotypical journalist who would have been doing it for 20 years. I was burnt out and I was skeptical and cynical of everything. And I didn't know it at that time, but really what I, what I ached for was a reason to believe, to be worried about it, but it's true in the universe again. And to believe that people, people were capable of having the personality and the characteristics and the attributes that I think most of us aspire to have kindness, tenderness, grace, humility, compassion, dedication. I mean, I could go on. And and what I found in, in this guy in particular, in Aubert, but in so many people there, was exactly that. And you can't capture that in a magazine story. It's, it's just, at least I can't. I'm not that good. And then you put on top of that the history and the struggles and the trials and the tribulations of, of that place, um, Burgundy, and what the domain means to it. I mean, the French government has described the Domaine de la Romanicante as a national cathedral. And I have to come up with a better analogy, but the best one I have so far is in terms of historic symbolism um, and, and, and how it's... Um, highly regard it. I mean, it's something like the Liberty Bell, you know, that, that we have, except it gives, it produces amazing wine. And so when this crime started to, when the crime started to occur and these notes came in, um, that's why the the French version of the FBI got involved, because this was very serious mm. stuff. So, you know, I just knew that there was no way that I was going to be able to get all of that on the page, and there's no way that I would be able to get the Prince de Conti story on the page. And, you know, the it's a cliche, I think, for me at this point, because I've said it so many times to friends in trying to describe this, but the, the vines are a great analogy because so much is tangled. You have family, history, 
business, love, loss. And it's not just Europe. You have France through the vines and through wine in particular is connected to America and California. And we've been each other's, in terms of wine, you know, best friend and arch enemy at given times over the years. And, and we've, we've benefited and been competitive with, benefited from and been competitive with one another for almost as long as, you know, there's, there's been American, there's been wine made in America. And, and, and Aubert and the domain is also very much at the center of that. And, you know, those were, there were so many things that I, I, not only could I not have gotten them into the magazine piece, I didn't even know that they existed until I started living there, basically, and, and learning all this stuff. So you were saying that when you first heard about this, you, you Googled him, and uh, things, you know, information had turned up, but apparently he wanted to keep this kind of quiet. How did you uh, convince him? How did you approach him uh, about this? And by the time you approached him, was this in the news? And what was his response, and how long did it take for him to open up to you? Well, these are all really good questions. Uh, he, by the time I approached him, it, it really wasn't in the news. Um, it, it, was, it, was in, it was in the French newspapers, but, but not not in any major way. Um, it wasn't, to my knowledge, it wasn't in, you know, like the, the French version of the New York Times. It was in the, like, the local Burgundian Von Romane newspaper. Um, and, and Von is situated, for those listening, you know, about about three and a half, four-hour drive south of Paris, and it's smack dab in between uh, Burgundy and, uh, pardon me, Bone and Dijon. So it was in the local papers there. Um, but no, you know, when my friend told me uh, that it was in these blogs, that's pretty much where it remained. And at, because of that, I, I put more and more credence in his informed speculation that that must have been because the domain was keeping a lid on things. And that's tied to why Aubert didn't want to cooperate at first. So I had I had done the typical, you know, magazine reporter thing, and I and I reached out to his contacts and then uh, eventually I got to him via the phone and um, he said uh, he conveyed that he wasn't interested in cooperating because he didn't want to do anything that might inspire copycat Mm. uh, crimes to be credited. That's a pretty valid reason, right? Because if you think, and, and that, so if you think about how many vineyards around the world are just there, open, exposed, and, and this was essentially, you know, agricultural terrorism is what, what took place here. And it, it almost opens up a whole new universe of potential awful crimes. So that, that's primarily what, why he didn't want to cooperate. But me having the benefit of being as ignorant as I was at the time, I thought, well, hey, he's just another source, and, you know, I'll hop on a plane, like usually happens, and I'll just go over there and I'll put the story together without him. Somebody somewhere always talks, and once somebody starts talking, they lead you to another person that starts talking. That's kind of just like journalism 101. But, so when I got there, um, I felt like I should at least, you know, the town's very small, as I write in the book, at, at great length describing it, but, it, you know, I was, I was born in Philly, and I put it in terms of city blocks, right? It's like a total at most of four city blocks. 
and wow. it's very small. So you're in a village. And we were staying in this hotel, which was just essentially a stone's throw from where the domain itself was located. And I was starting to make calls and talk to the prosecutor and meet with cops, et cetera. And I felt, well, as long as I'm here, I should at least try and reach out to Mr. DeVillain and just shake his hand and look him in the eye and tell him, you know, I'm here and I don't want you to feel like I'm tiptoeing around in your backyard without letting you know that. So the abridged, I was working with an interpreter, and, and the abridged version is is that um, <laughs> we ended up getting uh, a meeting with him. And in that meeting, he reiterated that he didn't want to cooperate for the copycat reason. And I said, I understand that, and I respect that. I said, but he, he, l- let me give you this to think about. When my friend in Northern California was telling me what he thought had happened here, he was very concerned and said that a lot of his winemaking colleagues in Northern California were concerned, those that knew about it in the community, because they didn't really know what happened. You know, all that was out there was the Domaine de la Romani Conti's prize vineyard, Romani Conti, may or may not have been poisoned, um, it may or may not have been destroyed to one degree or another. And they were all thinking, if it can happen there, whatever happened, it can happen anywhere. And I think, in, so it goes in life, not knowing is a big part of what creates fear mm-hmm. and perhaps unnecessary paranoia and keeps people up at night when they should be sleeping. And so I, I explained this, I shared this point of view with Aubert, and he's an extraordinarily smart, shrewd, um, thoughtful guy. And ultimately, I think that was one of the things that changed his mind. And and I said, so with that said, you know, I understand your decision and I respect it and not not to cooperate if that's what you choose to do. But I I hope that you respect and appreciate that I'm going to continue to report the story. And he was he was, you know, quiet and thoughtful for what seemed like a few seasons, but was only a few seconds. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, then I think we should talk. And so that's that's what kind of got the ball rolling. And as far as him opening up, I think for him, and and anybody who's ever done, and maybe it's not unique to journalism, maybe it's any profession, or maybe it's just life, I think before you let people in, you, you put them through some kind of sniff test. you know. And I think Aubert was just basically sizing me up. And we talked for a long time on background and off the record. And I think he was just trying to judge what kind of dude I was. And 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 he was finding out about me, and I told him I didn't know anything about wine. And, you know, um, I was just here to report a story. And, and he said, uh, you know, ultimately, he, he opened up, you know, probably three conversations in. And we, 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 the first three conversations were probably four hours of pop. And um, I got the impression that this was a guy who, in his universe, has the weight of the world on his shoulders. I mean, he's the ambassador, um, not only for Burgundy, but really for French wine and and for all wine. You know, if you talk to winemakers around the world, they regard him as just, you know, he's the the ultimate winemaker. He's, He's like the... 
he's the high priest, the Buddha uh, of wine. He did, he he thinks all of that is totally silly um, and shrugs it off and as nonsense. But but that's the fact. I mean, he, that's the regard that he's held in. Um, and he's he's surrounded by um, folks that are basically all, all, they want something from him, right? They want they want a bottle for for a, a charity. They want to get a glass of his fancy wine. They they almost always have a wine angle that that they're pursuing, and for better or for worse, I didn't care. That's not why I was there. I'm I'm more interested in the person than than the wine. And, and as I would learn, and I hope I convey in the book, they're inextricably linked. I think. Um, so I think he. I think when when you get right down to it, like like most of us, he he. He enjoyed a little bit getting some of this life, um, talking about it. it. It was a bit of, I don't know, maybe it was a bit of therapy for him mm-hmm. just, just to talk about this. And, and, you know, that's not a unique thing in this circumstance. I think journalists everywhere, um, when, you, when you get really into it with a primary subject over a long period of time, that's kind of how it goes. So I think the reason he talked was because he felt like I was someone that he could talk to. Wow, what a wonderful story, Max. I mean, great that you were able to not only stumble across this, but get him to talk to you and, and do all the research you did to, uh, to create this book. Well, thanks. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big, stumble the right word. I'm, I'm a big believer in fate. You know, I think there's, yeah. there's sort of an orchestrated stumbling that occurs in the universe. And, um, you know, there was one moment where my, my, my wife and two kids ended up joining me for one of the reporting trips in the summer, uh, it was a month of July. My kids really didn't want to go. My younger son just wanted to know if you could pee in the pool in France. <laughs> and I said, yeah, if you don't tell anybody. Um, he didn't want to miss the summer or any of that. But but at a certain point, we ended up as a family having dinner with, with Aubert and his lovely wife. She's like a heart on feet, <laughs> Pamela. Mm. And we're, we're sitting in the yard. And that, by the way, that's one of the moments where, you know, my my. Aubert, somebody had just sent Aubert uh, a Swiss Army knife as a gift, and he, he didn't. He had never seen one before. Like he didn't really know how to use it. And my my youngest son, Jack, he collects uh, Swiss Army knives, huh. and he ended up sitting on Aubert's lap, you know, showing him all the gizmos and how they pull out and everything. And it's that that was one of many moments where I saw like what could have been if this man had had a, had a child of his own on his lap. And you know, I think we're, we're, we the way our hearts are wired we we i experienced this when my my second son was born it's like well i'm so in love with my first child how how is it that you the humans have the capacity um to love something else as much and then lo and behold you have a second child and you find it's like one of those star trailers in hollywood this part of your heart there's another compartment right and it cranks open and you're like oh that, that's how i can love something else i yeah. didn't even know that capacity or that power or that love was there and with Aubert, I saw. I felt like I saw so many moments with that. But anyhow, he looks at me at one point at that dinner, and he says, "He says to Jack, actually, he said to, to my youngest son, he, who's who's now twelve. He says, so Jack, uh, do you think that uh, your father found Burgundy, or that Burgundy found your father?" <laughs> and, and I think I think the answer is both. And um, I feel so fortunate and lucky that it did. And and that's something that I hope the reader, uh, I, I hope I'm able to share that enthusiasm and, and, and give that context for the reader so that 
maybe they remember some of that. And regardless of what the price point is of, of the burgundy they buy, they'll be able to better appreciate all of what's in their glass. And, and maybe it'll inspire them to reach for their first burgundy. Well, it sounds like you have. We've been talking with Maximilian Potter. You can find his book, Shadows in the Vineyard, in stores right now. Max, thank you so much for talking with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Senior News Editor Calvin Reed will tell us about braving the crowds at Comic-Con, so stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW Senior News Editor Calvin Reed brings us the news from San Diego Comic-Con. Hey, Calvin, thanks for joining us. Howdy do. Glad to be here. Hi. So, um, usual big crowds, lots of walking. As you said, lots, lots of t-shirts. You're wearing a particularly <laughs> fine example today. This, this is from an earlier uh, Comic-Con, but I, 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 I brought a few back in this one. Is, is it kind of well. like going to rock shows where you never wear the rock show of that, of that group that year? Well, that's you wear it like point. three yeah. or four years ago just to show that you have fan staying power? Been there, done that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. In a way, in a way, that's certainly the case. Uh well, all of your previous comments were true. Uh, 130,000 people. Uh, I mean, that's the ticket sales, you know, which actually, by the way, sell out in 90 seconds. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, what they've done with uh, Comic-Con, because you can't get in, and because that doesn't mean people aren't still coming, is that they've really tried to fan out from the uh, convention center. If you've ever seen the San Diego Convention Center, it's sort of like a gateway into downtown mm-hmm. San Diego. Uh not like Jabbits, where you're sort of stranded in the middle of nowhere in urban wasteland. It fans out into really a great part of town. And so what they've done is they've kind of moved the show, you know, into venues all over the place, hmm. including, for instance, our hotel. We stayed at the Hilton. It's really at the very end of uh, the convention center. The entire front lawn was a gigantic, essentially, um, a, a amusement park. Uh, and I think a lot of this stuff is free, too. I mean, there was this a giant dome out of Homer Simpson's head. Um, <laughs> oh, I, you wow. know, I'm not sure it was in there, but, I, you know. Probably I'm, not much. I'm sure. Well, yeah. Well, in that sense, you're right. But um, I'm sure for the fans, there was something. Uh, they had a zip line out there. Um, I mean, all kinds of amusements. Um, you know, there there's stuff going on. There was a, uh, there's a, you know, you can pay to have zombies chase you in Petco Park, which is you know, really yeah, yeah. almost across the street from the convention center um, where the Padres play. So there's a huge event you pay there and you can be chased around the the baseball diamond by zombies to some extent. Um, but the publishing part of it remains uh, obviously for us the core element. Um, and and uh, uh, despite what you may have heard about there being no comics at Comic-Con, not true. So I, I heard that the, the Marvel and DC announcements were maybe a little disappointing or a little minor, but I know there's a ton of other stuff going on. And Marvel and DC are no. hardly the only people making a- comics. Exactly. And, and actually, they're not always necessarily the focus of our coverage anyway. I mean, obviously, both of those projects do. Uh, they do have a focus on the book on the book market. Um, but, you know, it generally isn't necessarily at Comic-Con where that, where that goes on. Uh, you know, we'll say this. There, I, I didn't find there were a whole lot of announcements that, of great interest about Marvel and DC, but, but it was, there were two things going on. It's Marvel's 75th anniversary and Batman's 
75th anniversary. So, you, you know, there was, there were a lot of, yes, there were a lot of events around, around those, these right. big anniversaries, uh, and particularly the Batman day, which is, <clears throat> there's a, excuse me, there is a Batman day uh, now that, uh, retailers are tying in and doing events around and giveaways. Um, but for our purposes, there was a really an amazing amount of stuff. We, we certainly focus on independence, uh, independent publishers and, uh, image expo, uh, which is a kind of, I call it a sort of a publisher's pop-up media event. Uh, mm-hmm. Image Comics is kind of the hot it indie press these days. Um, uh, they're an interesting um, uh, publishing uh, collective, essentially, uh, that they, basically what they do, they have a review board. Any artist can submit a project. Uh, if it's approved, then basically they have, they retain all the rights. They pay a sort of a fee. Um, Image takes care of distribution and marketing to some extent. Well, all the distribution, some of the marketing. The artists help with the marketing, but they are essentially, they own the property. It's not like typical comics properties where they're essentially work for higher deals. Right. So it's actually uh, brought a huge amount of, of artists coming there, particularly in this self-publishing driven age, which is, this is sort of a quasi self-publishing venture because uh, they have much more creative control. Uh, Image is very good at what it does. Uh, it's really got some amazing um, artists, particularly Brian K. Vaughn, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, probably best known to people as a TV writer, but to comics people, he's like, he's got a string of incredible hits behind him, <clears throat> including this new uh, work that's coming from uh, Image now called Saga, which is a sort of great fantastic fantasy sci-fi ongoing series that uh, brought one a couple of eisners too another important element of um, the, the san diego comic-con every year are the will uh, eisner comic industry awards as i call them the national book awards of the comics industry <laughs> the comics industry prefers to call them the oscars of the comics industry but we'll leave it go you know they, they can use their metaphor. I'll use mine. Uh, but that was a really, it was a really great event this year. Um, uh, Vivek Tuari's better known as a Tony Award winning Broadway producer, um, music producer. He's a TV film producer. Uh, but first time comics author, he has, written, he has a book called The Fifth Beatle. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Brian Epstein story is really the biography of the closeted gay man that discovered and managed mm-hmm. um, the Beatles, how he had a vision for them. Also, how, you know, uh, homophobia, you know, really destroyed him in the end. Uh, but also, he just set the, set the, really set the groundwork for the making the Beatles, the, the, the huge platform, the huge right. artists that they are today. How did he portray this in illustrations and pictures? Oh, it's a gorgeous book. And I should say he did the book uh, with two artists, Andrew Robinson and Kyle Baker, uh, uh-huh. a, a really fabulous artist who actually did a wacky cartoonist um, section in the book about when the Beatles went to the Philippines and got caught up with, um, what was the shoe woman, um, Mark, Marco? Uh, yeah, Melda Marcos. Melda Marcos. Yeah, 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 well, yeah, you have right. to see, they wanted a, he wanted a, uh, Andrew Robinson has a very sort of uh, realistic representational style and, and Kyle, among many things, he, he can do a really wacky uh, cartoony style. So this is almost like a dream sequence in the book where they are, they're chased around the Philippines by the military. Uh, you know, read the book. Sounds like a little bit like the Magical Mystery Tour or something, like yeah, the movie well, version yes. of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, really, what he did was he really—I mean, this was a passion project for him. Um, he um, um, uh, he grew up in the Lower East Side. His parents, he, you know, he's an um, Indian American, right? Uh, East Indian American. Um, uh, 
loved music, loved comics, um, has tremendous success in other fields, but could never get both the Beatles and comics out of, out of his head. He really wanted to combine the two into a project, and he did. Um, Andrew Robinson's a terrific artist. You just have to see the work to believe it. Lavish pages. Mm. And he really takes you from uh, the discovery of the Beatles all through the process to them becoming, you know, um, uh, musical superstars. Uh, and it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a fun book, but it's also uh, a tragic book. Um, and it really uh, found a chord with the, um, oh. with the Eisner Judges. I should say the book that won, it didn't win. It won for the uh, best reality based work and in the comics industry, you know, reality needs its own category. That's kind of the equivalent <laughs> of nonfiction for, yeah, uh, for, yeah, for, for most book. people. Right, yes. Right, okay. But I should say that the book that won, um, the best new graphic novel of the year, uh, was one of our, uh, PW best books of the year, uh, Rutu Modan's the property, which is a really wonderfully done story about a, uh, Polish Jewish family that goes back to Warsaw, Supposedly the check on uh, some property that they had during the World War II, but actually it ends up revealing Longhill's secrets. But it's a beautiful book, and that really was uh, chosen. Um, but there were a number of other book, book-related book right. uh, Eisner Awards as well. Wow, great. I, what else do you want to know? I can go on and on. There, there <laughs> we, were news, we, there were we, news we releases uh, of all kinds. Um, so tell us just, we only have a little bit more time, but, um, tell us a little bit about, uh, some of the people who were at Comic-Con and maybe if you saw any exciting presentations, uh, or anything that really got you fired or up. Or costumes. For, uh, for well, I mean, yeah. there's no end of costumes, but, uh, but I will say one of the things that we did, uh, we did podcasts every day. Um, Heidi and I, uh, right. Heidi McDonald, uh, the, our, my cohort at PW Comics World. So um, really every day we were putting together, you know, uh, people to talk to and recording people. Uh, among the people that I was able to uh, record was um, Chuck Polinick, who is doing a sequel to Fight Club as a graphic novel. Wow. And that's certainly one right. of the big, right. big announcements that come uh-huh. out of Comic-Con. Right. Um, and I was able to interview him on the floor to talk a little bit about you know, um, why he wanted to do a comic, why he uh, um, embraced the medium. Uh, he's going to be doing it with Cameron Stewart and David Mack, two veteran comics artists. So, and what are they known for? What kind of... Um, uh, Cameron Stewart has done a number of works. Uh, to call him up the top of my head is going to yeah, be yeah, tough. Sure. No, no, no. But... <laughs> he's a veteran comics artist. Uh, David Mack is really best known. He's done a number of works for a dreamy, exotic, really almost experimentalist graphic novel called Kabuki mm-hmm. um, that is really uh, uh, heavily influenced by Asian, right. Asian art. Um, uh, so that was one of the bigger, the bigger announcements. But, you know, I also um, had a chance to talk to some wonderful artists. Uh, Eleanor Davis, a young cartoonist who has a book called How to Be Happy coming out from Fantagraphics. Uh-huh. Uh, Lucy Nisley. Uh, another uh, real, she's young but she's kind of a veteran she has a book called An Age of License it's a travelogue and it's kind of a coming of age story as she bounces around Europe uh, really, really uh, go to publisherswiki.com slash comics <laughs> and we'll hear it and all there's, there, it you'll all. see there's podcasts for every day of Comic Con um, okay. we talked to some retailers too uh, so there's so much going on there you know I think I have to come back on the show here for part I two. Think, I think so, part too. Two. I think so, too. <laughs> Calvin's day, many days at Comic-Con. All right. Well, we'll definitely uh, take a look at our schedule, see if we can squeeze you in. <laughs> okay. uh, no, it's always great to have you All on right. the show, Calvin. Okay. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And now, a final word from our sponsors. 
Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. Join the community of book lovers at Publishers Weekly Radio every Friday and on demand at iHeartRadio.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another in-depth author interview, along with lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 